Hey everyone, welcome to episode 25 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Chong Chang Yao. Now, I first heard of Chang Yao through a wonderful app called Be My Eyes, which connects volunteers, which can be anyone listening to this podcast, with those with visual impairments. Sign up, and then anytime someone requires assistance, you and several other volunteers will get an alert, and if the timing suits you, you can answer the call to help. What caught my eyes about Chengyao's story was how inspiring it was. Having gone blind at the age of six, he has always sought to prove that he could be just like everyone else. He was, among many other things he's achieved, successfully petitioned the governor of Hong Kong to provide equal rights and opportunities to the blind, to being the director of fundraising at Oxfam where he conducted a TV production expedition to Yunnan, is currently the president of the Hong Kong Blind Union and the co-founder and CEO of Carbon Care Inalab. We talked about his childhood, why it was like growing up blind and defying society's expectations time and again, and how others can assist to make the world and workplace a more inclusive place for everyone else. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I was born into a big family. When I was born, we had five siblings, my parents and my grandmother. So eight people staying together. Then quickly, I have another two sisters. So we grew up like 10 people. We were living in Kowloon City at that time in a subdivided flat. And we had three rooms. So three families living in three rooms. So they are the more wealthy one, including the landlady. After walking through these three rooms, then there were two Bunkers, okay? So we live in one bunk, two beds, upper layer and the lower layer. Each layer can hold about four people probably. When we were young, we just crammed into the bed with any other people that parents put us together. So we have only one bed as our living space. We share a kitchen with six or even seven different families because we were poor. My parents were hawkers, so they sold vegetables in the market. During nighttime in summer, my grandmother would be taking me out to the pavement in front of our flat. She would set up a mattress and a curtain, and then we spent the night sleeping on the streets. I remember it to be quite nice because it's cooler. And then my eyes became worse and worse when I grew up for reasons that my parents did not understand. So they brought me to see a doctor. They could not understand what the doctor was saying. My parents were coming from dirty. They barely managed Cantonese, which was the main dialect. But we grew up learning both. And this was when you were six years old, right? So at what point did you learn what was actually happening to you? And how did you feel at the time? Well, my eyesight was deteriorating as I grew up, as I said. At the age of six, the doctor advised my parents that I should go through a surgery. If not, then my eyesight would 
also be lost. And then I was suffering constant headaches because the condition was early childhood glaucoma. So my parents decided to go through the surgery. And after that, I lost my sight. I remember my childhood. I was living with a deteriorating eyesight. I could not see things as good as my sisters. I I was self-conscious of this condition. But if you ask me, I remember my childhood as quite happy because my sisters and brothers, they were quite keen to play with me, adjust to what I can do and what I cannot do. And we would go out together to cinemas, watch films, and then they would explain to me what people are doing. Only occasionally, when they are too excited, they would certainly forget me. (laughs) But I will say that I was part of the family, and then the family loved me. My parents loved me, my brothers, sisters... They loved me. They might quarrel with each other, but they never tried to quarrel with me. (laughs) Uh, Gave me the best words available, just that my parents often blame themselves for in some way responsible or causing the blindness, which was entirely not their fault. I didn't care too much about blindness. So if people ask me, how did you cope with the suffering? I basically remember that I was not very happy after the surgery because I could not see anything. I could not move. I spent, I don't know how long, crying. And then I began to move around, touch everything in the small flat, and then learn to navigate around. Then I start to take it as normal. This is myself. This is part of me. My brothers and sisters continue to go out with me and play. Now it is all banned, right? Firecrackers in the new year. They will ask me to hold to this long strip of incense that people use for Chinese worship. They then light the fire, hold my hand and touch these firecrackers and then bring me to run away. (laughs) The blast. So we were all very happy. So growing up in this kind of peer support and family acceptance and a lot of entertainment. So I remember my childhood more about these things than about losing the sight. So you mentioned just now that you were suffering from glaucoma. Do you mind sharing what that means? At that time, we didn't understand the medical conditions uh, because my family has no hereditary record. But I started so early, so it might be inherited. Glaucoma is like you are losing your sight unknowingly because there is a blockage to the liquid in your eyes, and then they would build up the pressure and destroy the nerves. So that's a condition. But people are not aware of them if they are not checked regularly. So as I understand it, after this happened, you end up going to a special boarding school for the blind. And I wonder if you could share what that was like. I mean, you were learning Braille as well, right? With steel boards and nails on it. So. Yeah. I went to the Ebenezer School for the Blind. It was recommended to us by a social worker from the social welfare department. She visited us for probably a year to convince my parents to send me to the School for the Blind. Because I think my parents, especially my grandmother, who 
at that time very old already. I mean, they were from villages in Chuchao. So they were living with the belief that these foreign missionaries might take away your children and then keep them forever. Basically, she refused to let me go. There was a big quarrel between my grandmother and my parents about whether or not they should send me to the school. Eventually, my parents paid a visit to the school and found the conditions good. So they decided to send me over against the will of my grandmother. But it was a boarding school, so I stayed there for a week and come back during weekend. It was one or two weekends coming back, my grandmother started to accept this arrangement. He constantly asked me about whether I love to be in the school, how people treat me, is it better if I stay at home, and so on. I was pretty cautious. I know what she wanted to hear. So I said, um, no, it was very good. Uh, people treat me very well, lots of food and so on. And I enjoy it very much. So I think gradually she was convinced that it was a good place for me to grow up. I think that was a very important change in my life because I started to receive a formal education. I started to learn Braille. What was it like learning Braille? For those who don't understand Braille, Braille is a system of six dots in a two by three matrix. So two columns, three rows. These six dots used to represent letters or minerals. So you have one dot as A, the first two dots on the left column as B, and so on and so forth. It's very clever because it's very easy to read with our fingers. For sighted people, they think it's an impossible task to be able to use your finger to distinguish the dot patterns. But actually, you can do it if you spend enough time. It's easier than going up to the space. Uh, and so, yes, we train our finger touch. We train our skins to be able to recognize the dot patterns so we can read. For English and some other Latin language, then it's easier. So you have just the alphabet and the numerals. Numerals are universal in shape. But Chinese is very challenging because you cannot possibly represent all the different characters. So we use pronunciation to represent Chinese. We use as romanization, spelling. So in that way, we are not learning the written system of Chinese characters. So that's a big barrier to learning particularly ancient Chinese literature because you are not being able to study the words as they appear. But then in some other way, it's a, a plus because whenever people can speak, we can put it down in the phonetic systems. So therefore, we, we don't have a problem of how do you write these words. So long as they speak, then we can write it down. It also proves to be no barrier for us to read whatever books, because we might not be able to understand what it means, but we can read it. Therefore, we overcome a very important barrier. We can read books. We can study Chinese, English, mathematics, and whatever subjects that our sighted peers study, we could do it in the school for the blind. 
I imagine your world must have really opened once you mastered Braille. And as I understand it, when you were in primary six, you also joined the Hong Kong Blind Union. At that time, all the peers started to discuss about what it means to be blind, what blindness means, what is our experience, what can we do and what can't we do. This was somehow a day-to-day questions we asked each other to prove that we can do whatever we want to do, even though we don't use eyesight. So we play football. We use a plastic ball that gives out a sound when it touches ground or wall. We chose a place where there is two walls. It's a very narrow lane. And then we use both ends as a goal for goalkeeping. And then we play football by the sound of the ball and by the touch of our foot. So we were very fond of it. Some of my friends swam. We jumped from high up to test our daring. Like you jump from the staircase from first step, second step, three, four, five, six, seven. Wow. So, so <laughs> we were quite crazy and grabless in a way, according to our teachers. We grew up saying to ourselves we could do things that other people thought we could not. So whenever the teacher said, "Uh, you cannot do this, we try to do it. Our teachers, some of them were also very open-minded. In the classroom setting, in the control setting, they would teach us how to keep this worm, how to feed them with leaves until they grow up and become a moth. We learned to read maps with our fingers. So I could even remember the world map in my brain. Even now, I know where countries are located, shape of different continents and so on. But whenever we have the chance to be on the streets, we were so often hearing things about, oh, if you are blind, you should not go out. It's very dangerous. You are endangering other people. I joined the Home Blind Union as a member when I was primary six. I think I became a committee member when I was form six. We were inspired by these slogans from United States that what we need is our rights, not welfare. We are the best people who know the solutions to our problem. We are not the problem themselves. We are the solutions. I'm wondering, as a child and you were exposed to all these different people and pushing the boundaries, did you ever have a dream of what you wanted to do because at the time I think like blind people there were not many choices that people ultimately thought for you right yeah that's right for those of us who were brought into a boarding school that was a great situation to be in it was like luxurious living place compared to where I came from as I said I share the toilets with 20 families or so In Ebenezer School, you actually have a flush toilet. We didn't have that kind of thing. That was great. Wow, so modern. But most blind people were in the streets. There was a factory for the blind because welfare for the blind was systematically started by the government only in the 50s. So before that, it was like a a few foster homes including the Ebenezer School for the Blind. Otherwise, people were in the streets. Or some learned to sing, a lot learned fortune-telling. 
There was a good neighbor who recommended my mother to send me to fortune telling. She decided to send me to the school for the blind. Then after graduating from university, I discovered that fortune telling was earning much better than a university graduate. So, you know, <laughs> uh, whether it's a good choice or not, <laughs> I didn't know what to do after the school for the blind. Telephone operating was starting to be introduced as a profession for blind people. We were supposed to be better in language, in talking to people, so we could be trained to be telephone operators for the growing white-collar sector in Hong Kong. After the uh, riot in Hong Kong, 67, then Hong Kong began to grow into a global manufacturing sector in textile, plastic, electronic products. So there were beginning to be some white-collar jobs for factories or for hotels or for the government as well. There was a vocational training for blind people to be in telephone operating. The factory for the blind was built in the late 50s. So there were places for blind people to be trained to do sewing, basket making, some metal work, I think. So these are already considered to be more than way of opportunities for the blind. And then there were an experiment of sending blind people to ordinary school for integrated education. My ambition was to continue to study. And I remember I wrote an essay about, I don't want to be a telephone operator because while I may still like the job, but I hope blind people will not be doing just one job. My teacher said I was too unrealistic with my essay. I remember my essay was being cited as an example of you should be more realistic. So I dream to be able to study with sighted people and to explore new job opportunities for blind people. Yeah, but you didn't let that stop you. I think you had to really improve your English to get into the regular school. Well, I was already top of the class, okay? From very early on, I was a natural first of the class. I was working hard, but I didn't feel that I had to give up too many things. At the time, the school started to send the best tool to an ordinary school for trial. But when it comes to my year, they stopped. They wanted to be more cautious. They felt that our center was too far behind some of the schools, especially in English, because um, English was a medium of instruction in Hong Kong at the time for most schools, especially the better ones. The Ebenezer School for the Blind at the time was partnering with two top schools. They don't want blind people to prove to be unsuited for study and then being sent to their class. So there was a lack of confidence in my ability. I studied for myself that year to achieve a greater English standard before I could go into an ordinary school. And then the Hong Kong Blind Union, they had ambition to prove that blind people can study. This is an opportunity and a human rights. It's not about an elite choice or a choice of elites. We should not be subjected to being determined by the social worker or the school principals for our fate, for our choices. We should make our own choice. This is how we see ourselves. So I felt that it was not just for myself. It was to prove that blind people 
could go into an ordinary school without being controlled or determined by our school for the blind. I used a year to improve my English because our own standard is lower. So I managed to convince St. Francis Xavier's College, and they accepted me to be in Form Four. It was a breakthrough for myself because we proved that by our hard working, we could realize a, a a dream. Some of my peers were laughing at me and said, "Well, it's better to work as a telephone operator because you can learn earn more money." We could not imagine ourselves going to university, so they said, "You might still be working as telephone operator. So why bother to spend another two years or four? You could actually start earlier earning money." Hearing all these people, even. Those who are also visually disabled. What was driving you? Did you feel inside that I'm going to do something different from what people expect? It was a sense of wanting to prove that we we have some other choice. Our ability is not affected by our blindness. I didn't want to say I am different. I want to say I can be the first, and if I can do it, some of my friends can. They are not convinced right now. They are not convinced of the value right now, but. I can go there to prove that to myself and to them as well. So these kind of motives of wanting to prove ourselves, wanting to strive for a new horizon, wanting to bring something good to other people as well. So a combination of these objectives. And it's not easy as well when you move to a regular school because they don't have all the equipment that Ebenezer School had. After school, every day you had to go to Marinol Convent School. And Sister Moira had to translate everything for you. Yeah, there was a sister called Sister Moira from the United States. She happened to know us and asked what she could do. We said what we need is education. She therefore devoted her time to learning Braille and then translate material for us, and then set up a student center by borrowing the convent. So it was near the school, not part of the school. She managed to invite the principal to send a lot of their students for volunteer work after their schools. I don't have a lot of textbooks because it takes a long time to translate a textbook into Braille. At that time, there wasn't any computer printing. We were still using a typewriter to type English homework for Chinese Braille. We have to read to a volunteer who handwrite our essays for marking by teachers. So after school, we'll go to the center. And the volunteers will read to us. Then we will use Braille to transcribe them. Few volunteers made the effort to learn Braille so they could translate themselves. Tape recording is another popular means of getting the material. So these are how I overcome some of the challenges. In the school for the blind, they have a much better support, of course. And then you go back to a better living place as well. In Saint Francis Xavier, each day I have to take two bus journeys back home and forward. One journey takes about an hour, so it's the comfort that we have to give up as well and the support. But it was very worthwhile. I try to make the initiative to participate, to make contribution to other students. So instead of positioning ourselves as the target of assistance. So, for example, there were some project teams 
So I always volunteer to do the things that other project members don't want to do. I try to offer myself to do the write-up so every fellow student was so happy. And then they were convinced that I did good work. I answer questions during class. I surprise my teacher by being able to handle some maths in my mind. They didn't understand how I did it. I offer assistance to other students who might not understand something. So I felt that this way they were able to accept me. Otherwise, we could become stereotype people would say, oh, okay, what can I do for you? If you say no, then they would go out, they have their friends. They might not treat you as part of their friends. We went out to cinema together. We went to concerts together. And some of the friends even invited me to their home for a stay. I was truly integrated. So it was not just about managing to do the homework to get the exam done. Is also to overcome how other people define you, to define yourself and your relationship with others through your own effort. So after all that, you end up going to University of Hong Kong to do a bachelor's in English studies in 1978. What was the plan yeah. then? Like, how did that come about? I was intending to study economics, and then. The English department and the psychology department were very friendly and, and proactive lecturers who came to me and said, "Okay, if you choose to study with us, we'll give you the best support." To go into the university was a battle because at that time only two percent of the age groups could go into a university in Hong Kong. Now is forty percent or fifty percent. That was late seventies. We have only two universities: the Chinese University, the Hong Kong U. Our school curriculum was targeting Hong Kong U, so I, I I I naturally took that exam. But my peers, my friends, were very opportunistic. They had to be because it was so slim a chance to get into Hong Kong U. They would like to take seven. I only did one. I said, "Well, one is already so much work. I could not afford to do too many exams." So I put all my eggs into one basket. I got through. So it was a big thing because we were in the arts stream. Most of our science students would be going into university, but very few art students went in. So I was one of those, and you were one of the earliest blind students in university as well. The first batch was two students. The second batch was one. So I was the fourth, I think. My year has two, but one. My friend suffered from eye disease during that year, so he could not be admitted. There was a delay. And as I understand it, at the time you were thinking of entering academia, right? Until an incident with your friend in 1979, where he was declined the opportunity to even take a recruitment exam with the Hong Kong. Ah,、oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you for reminding this. As I said, I was the third batch. He was the second batch, so he graduated a year earlier in 1980. So in his last year, we were taking recruitment examinations. The recruitment process takes a whole academic year, quite long. So they told him, "We don't have braille examination paper. If you can read the paper, you can come in." 
So it's like very insulting. We wrote a petition letter to the governor and he came to our hall to give us a talk. And we thought, okay, this is a good opportunity. So we petitioned him. Before the governor came, were you rallying all your friends saying, hey, the governor's coming, show support? Yeah, our homemates are very supportive. The one who was hosting the talk, we promised us we would make sure that he would not let him go until he get our letter. Well, it was not difficult. He was ready to take our letter and he was very gentlemanly-like. He said, I will study the letter, surely, I promise you. I may not be able to give you all your requests, but I certainly will give you an answer. I will give you a good thinking of what you are requesting. It was enough of a politician answer. At that time, we felt it to be receptive. We request them to open civil service. We said we are trained, we are university educated, and it costs a lot of public money to educate us. And then if in the end we have to do telephone operating, it's a waste of public resources. This is not justice because we are just as able as others students. We quote lots of examples about foreign blind people taking senior positions, decision-making positions, office work. He formed a working group to study how government should recruit disabled persons. And we were also interviewed about ideas. I think the working group was also very open-minded. I think they recommended that the government should do it, should devote enough extra resources if needed to support them, and then to give them an examination arrangement that they can handle. And then to set an example for other employers in the society that we should be uh, open-minded, get the best talents from all communities. They made a civil service regulation that if people with disabilities qualify for an examination, they should be given all the facilities needed to complete it. And if they score as well as some other students, they even be given an appropriate degree of priority. You actually went to LSE from 1984 to 1986, which is actually my alma mater. So I was very oh, really? excited. To, yeah, I was very excited to hear that. <laughs> well, it was still in Houghton Street. I remember there was a lift without door. It is moving continuously. So when it is up to your floor, you have to jump in. And then when you get to the next floor, you have to come out. It is in the student union's building. I think it was torn down in early 90s, I later learned. I definitely didn't see this this list. (laughs) (laughs) I I like LSE because I read about the social movement. I read about history. I read about the Fabian society. So I read about how LSE came to be existent by the Sydney web stories and so on. So I was very much attracted by the progressive that have to set up the LSE. So I thought LSE is in England. There were a lot of arrangements for blind people, but I discovered that they didn't know a thing. (laughs) And then I have to tell them how to make examination arrangements. I asked them to go to the Royal National Institute for the Blind. They didn't know. We wanted to promote the understanding of the school and the students. So we formed an organization called the Society for the Enlightenment of the Sighted. It lasted for a few years. I was a founding chairman. 
there was a law student who was blind from Ghana, and there was a blind master student from UK. I study information systems in the first year of my master. I still felt that I wanted to come back to Hong Kong to work. So there was this tension between doing academic work or doing some other work. I felt that I didn't have enough conviction to do academic work. I prefer to read or debate the conclusions or the findings and then going through the ritual of research, of compiling the data, doing literature review. It was too much for me. I think you have to read a lot of books you don't want to read in the first place. I have an intellectual curiosity, but I didn't have the perseverance in academic work. So after you graduated, you came back to Hong Kong in 1990, and then you tried three times to pass the civil service recruitment exam, right? It was like trying to break into a wall. So I tried three times. And the third time, it, we went through a written examination, an oral examination, and the third part is a group examination. So I was put into a group of seven people and we were given a topic and seven roles and we have to discuss public security ordinance. So we discussed the topic seven times. I guess it's a test of your knowledge, your communication and your ability to engage with a team. At that time, 3,000 people taking the exam and they admitted 30-something. So now it's even more challenging. So you end up becoming the first and only Hong Kong government administrative officer who was blind. Yeah. And what was your role there? I was the assistant secretary to education. It's a big title, but inside we were so often called Oh, you were the lowest rank, you know. My role was to take minutes, to write a recommendation on a policy, to analyze the budget of some public institutions that was still under government supervision. For example, the precursor to Open University. Now it is called Open University. It used to be called Open Learning Institute. So at that time, it was just formed. So I was asked to look after policy on OLI and also their budget. Another thing was about tertiary education qualification body. During my time, it was an expansion of university in Hong Kong. The government decided to develop eight universities. Now it's nine. So at the time, it was already the firm base of tertiary education for the next 30 years. So it was an exciting time. So after three years, you decided to leave for Oxfam. What was the reasoning behind that? I felt I don't want to go deep into a government bureaucrat for the rest of my life. I might disagree with the policy secretary, but I could not make my views heard. I started to join Oxfam's work as a volunteer in uh, 86. I was on their board. And then they needed a person to develop community engagement, community routing. So I decided that might be an interesting thing to do. They know me as a community person. I have some profile. I know the government. They want me to do fundraising. So I did fundraising for Oxfam. 
I mean, you were at Oxfam for 13 years on the board for Oxfam International as an executive director for Oxfam Hong Kong. And I wonder yeah. that long period, what was some of your most, your proudest achievements? A lot, a lot, a mm. lot. But I like to say I was innovative in fundraising. I managed to develop the Oxfam Hong Kong's fundraising base. They have a monthly donor base that was already 3,000 when I joined. So when I left, it was 100,000. How do you develop it? Three major things. Number one, I set a growth target. And then other colleagues said 3,000 is enough. So I felt, no, we should grow because there were 3 million people working. If you get 1%, that's already 30,000. We developed a TV magazine. It was an idea suggested to us by somebody. Our misperception is that TV thing is very expensive. So he was able to pawn us to a low-cost spot. We organized a phone-in donation with volunteers at the time. I said, okay, let me get a sponsor to sponsor the TV time. I made a calculation to the management that if you use TV, the same money you send out mail letter, the difference in audience rating and the people who receive your letter, and there's so many of them do not open it. So TV is actually much less expensive. TV is a big breakthrough. And then I brought one of our earliest um, TV crew to Yunnan to film our projects and bring back the footages. So therefore, making use of TV to appeal was a big thing in my time as fundraising director. And the second method we used was to do face-to-face -face recruitment on the street. I was inspired by what the other Oxfams are doing, some other big NGO like Greenpeace. At that time, there was an economic recession, and then a lot of people lost their jobs. The people who worked in restaurants, they lost their jobs. They became joining retraining programs. This generation of people were growing up with us. They were factory workers before. When all the factories moved up to the mainland, they became lowly surface industry workers. I shouldn't say lowly, but it is the front line. So I felt, okay, we might be able to offer them some jobs as well. So we trained them to be donor recruitment representatives. We tell them about poverty, Oxfam's mission, global poverty, but translated into ordinary language. We believe that they could become change driver and they can change themselves. They are in a situation of also suffering from economic downturn and then they are helping an organization which champion opportunities for the marginalized and who are concerned about structural poverty, about changing inequalities, so the TV and face-to-face, -face, we generated so many donors. I think they, they were the main drivers. I was in WTO campaign. That was a big thing. I was asked to represent Oxfam to debate with the Director General of trade organizations in Hong Kong. And then I went to see the Chinese ambassador to WTO. I also developed our China program, built urban poverty program, and engaged in policy research in China. 
I heard from some of the colleagues who later told me that my period there was the most innovative and most exciting period. I think you also introduced the Oxfam Rice, right? Yeah, that was an opportunity for us to work with community-level organizations. I said, let's have a street-based fundraising event because we were too far away from the people at that time. I said, well, let's find something to sell. So people start to imagine, brainstorm. We came down to rise and then we discovered there was a committee member who was a wholesale rice seller. So they could donate rice to us. Why rice though? It's warm. It's about food. It's about Chinese. Rice is about family getting together. It's about showing love and care. It's also the food for a good majority of people in poverty. So it connects people, rich and poor. So a lot of meanings into them. So it's not like we're selling one kilo. We told them that you bring your choice back home and then you bring hope and love. And I think the net proceeds were donated to Oxfam Smallholder Farmers Development Fund, right? Which is like small farmers in poor communities around the world. Yeah, that's how it connects. We have a lot of projects in villages, working with farmers, women, and not necessarily targeted to agriculture. It can be education, it can be women's rights, it can be community organizations. It's a poverty intervention uh, strategy. A lot of people in poverty, they know what to do, but they might not be able to know how to do it. And they might not be given an opportunity to develop these solutions to overcome the restrictions by systems and unfair rules. So we believe that community-based organizations is almost a first to empower them, that they can really join together and make a change. And so as I understand it, at the time, you also became the president of Hong Kong Blind Union, which you still are. How has Hong Kong changed during that time when you first got involved in the Blind Union to this point? I still remember that we wrote a partition in 1976 in response to the government's green paper. We were asking for legislative protection of the rights of blind people. I think it was 1995 when the government introduced the Disability Discrimination Ordinance. So it took 20 years. And then I was consulted for, I think, a year working with a few people, including a government official. The transportation also changed a lot. We have the highest number of audible traffic light signals in Asian cities. This is my estimate, okay? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but in the early 80s, when we asked the government to install them, they were very cautious. They said if they install too many audible traffic light signals, encourage the blind people to go out in the streets which is in itself dangerous. So I said, well, we decide to walk on the streets irrespective of whether or not you install these audible traffic light signals. We are the best people who know what we can do and how we want to do it. You install these traffic light signals because they are demanded by citizens. It is a citizen facilities. It is not a kindness. If you don't progress, then 
you let Hong Kong run behind other cities. So they started to install. We first asked all traffic light signals to be installed with audible signals. And they said, no, 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 each year you recommend the traffic lights that most mind people will travel. Then we install them first. Over the years, we encourage the members to make recommendations. So now we have a lot. So this is another battle that we went through. And education, I remember when the education department, after seeing that proving mainstreaming education is possible, then they introduced resource support and make it a policy that blind people should be able to go into ordinary education according to their abilities. So a lot of students were able to go into secondary schools and universities and studying various different subjects as well. So it's also a great change in professional possibilities. And what I really love was finding out that you also founded the Dialogue in the Dark. Can you share a bit about that? The Dialogue in the Dark was founded in Hamburg. I think in 2008, the founder, Andre Hannes, came to Hong Kong to see whether there was any people interested in it. Two friends of mine were, so they invited me to join as well. And then we developed a Dialogue in the Dark in Hong Kong. Dialogue in the Dark, for those who don't know it, is an experience where sighted people invited to go into a complete dark room. Blind people in this situation would be the guide, guiding them through some experience. So we might simulate some urban experience some interesting, challenging experience that you think you cannot do without seeing. At the end, all the participants going through dialogue in the dark thinks that they have gained a lot of insight into possibilities, into themselves, and into gaining a greater understanding of how blind people can actually be independent. So it becomes a great social enterprise. Each year, about 30 or 40,000 people visit the dialogue in the dark. So over the years, I think we probably have over half a million people coming through dialogue in the dark in different formats. The pandemic is a great challenge to them because they find that they cannot get any business. What's special about this is that it's a chance for blind people to be employed in a way that's meaningful rather than your common telephone operator. And I wonder for those who say are running companies or in companies, what do you think are the best ways for them to be more inclusive? Well, I think they should really look at core competence. They are often affected by peripheral things. Like believe that blind people cannot do these things because I can do it only when I can see. But if they open up what actually needs to be done, organizing, communicating, analyzing, all these competence in a person's personality, language, and you can do it through other means. So you have to be open-minded about how individuals deliver these outputs and how they manifest their core competence. I feel that a lot of international companies have diversity and inclusion in their HR. So it's not completely new. There are companies who are doing it. I think Asia is a bit slow in catching up. 
and a lot of even international companies setting branches and headquarters in East Asia. To me, are not bringing what their headquarters said they should be doing to to this area. They are affected by the general social, economic, cultural attitudes that we have to get the best, and the best meaning the traditional best university, the traditional most beautiful, most handsome kind of people. Every time when I talk to an employer, I said, "Yeah, you are giving opportunities to a blind person." But you are also giving opportunities to yourself and your colleagues. So I think the change of mindset is most important. Being in Oxfam, you end up entering education, and now you are in climate change. Could you share with us yeah. how that transition all happened? My space is in social advocacy and social change. So I don't limit myself to a particular issue or particular organization. Climate change came to our attention when I was in Oxfam because we we were aware erosion of soils, drought, how coal mining affect the plight of the community. I mean, climate change started to be recognized in. The late 80s, and United Nations set up the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which started in 1994-95. We began to be aware of the change in Oxfam. We have a, a lot of programs. Part of it was to deal with climate change, even in early years when it's not so much recognized by the rest of society. And after leaving Oxfam, I was in the University of Hong Kong at that time, and I brought university students to this UN annual climate change summit. So I brought them to Bali, to Copenhagen. I believe that we could do something to promote Hong Kong people's awareness. So we set up a Carbon Care Asia in 2010, and then Carbon Care Indolab in 2015. And I brought another group of delegate to Paris to witness the signing of the climate agreement. There's an injustice element because those who suffer from the consequences of climate change are not the people who cause them, and are the least people who can defend them. The people in Pacific Islands, in the low coast of Bangladesh, is all in the subdivided flats in Hong Kong where the indoor heat can go up. And up and up. So I'm interested in giving some effort to address them. And I think what's unique about Carbon Care is that you put the youth at the heart of what you're doing, right? Youth and entrepreneurship. And something、yeah. I learned, which、uh, was from the virtual summit you very kindly invited me to, was that there was a research done saying that over seventy percent of youth do believe in climate change, but then less than forty percent believe that. They had anything to do with the impact. There was a total disconnect with the fact that their lives had anything to do with it, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I invited you to a youth summit. So it's a UN initiative. This research shows that we have a lot of work to do because people must feel that they can and they have to make a change. We are doing a training course to be launched at the end of November. At the same time, we also have a program to install solar systems with NGOs and launch climate change education programs. So we want to engage with the community in different ways. 
And I'm wondering in this time of COVID, how has that impacted you and all the incredible work that you're doing? Well, we have to cancel a lot of events, but we can also hold a lot of online events. It actually helps us to be connected to people outside of Hong Kong. It's a time for reflection how we live our lives, how we should be paying more attention to family. But what do we do after the pandemic is gone? Do we go back to business as usual? They call it revengeful consumption. I must eat more. I don't have any restriction. I must spend all my time in consuming. This is time for us to find out what is actually best, what is actually core value in human life, human interaction. How to create jobs that do not destroy the environment, that are really doing things meaningful to other people. What are your mm. plans for your future and the kind of big goals you want to achieve? Well, I'm already over 60s. I'm not thinking of retirement. I'm mm. thinking of doing things that I feel can make a difference to people and to myself as well in terms of satisfaction, knowledge. I don't know, I'm not a very good retirement planner. So I am focusing on the good work I'm doing now, and hopefully they will be meaningful to other people now or in the near future. Looking at everything that you've achieved, clearly you are someone that lots of people admire and want to emulate. I'm wondering who do you admire or follow? I think of two persons, one uh, well-known people, one not so well-known. Let me talk about the not well-known person. I mentioned uh, Sister Mara when I met her uh, in younger days. She gave me a lot of support in my study. There are two things that I learned from her. She obviously was a missionary, but she didn't preach. She didn't preach to anyone. She said her work speaks for her, her work speaks for her and for God. One time, we were running short of volunteer. These volunteers, they were mostly students, don't necessarily appear on time and disappear suddenly. So at one point, there was no volunteer in the center. She went out to the streets. We were in a school district, so there were a lot of students passing by. Do you have time to come in and do some volunteer work? I imagine she was about 70 at that time, late 60s. So it was this pure motivation of service. So I believe that nothing cannot be done if you really want to do it. She gave me faith that you don't have to be cynical. You don't have to be purely talking. You can act. They can be real and meaningful. I admire Nelson Mandela fighting for the rights of the Black. A lot of time was being able in the prison for 27 years and was even able to love the enemies, to at least not to be driven by hatred, anger, selfishness, selfness even. He showed me that it was possible to reconciliate with people who might have done harm to you. I don't know whether I could have such a perseverance. I think it's not normal. It's superhuman. And that's why I take him as a model for something that I don't necessarily believe I can do. But it's something good if people can do it. And I'm wondering, do you believe in something that most people don't? Most people don't believe that I feel happy. When I told them I have a happy child, they were sort of, 
or are you lying or are you kidding? You must have been crazy and so on. So I told them how happy I was when I was a child. The kind of excitement games, the knowledge, the curiosity. I, I play so many things. I play chess, I play football. I mean, I remember all the radio and television programs. I have a happy childhood and I have no regret. Okay, if you ask me to choose to be blind, I probably don't have that courage if I have been sighted. <laughs> but if you say, oh, you would be a better or happier person as a sighted person, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't want to put that as an if. I don't want to live in an if <laughs> situation. I've been doing so many different things. So I'm very happy. And is there anything that we can do to make your life better? Trust um, people and believe in love, believe in justice. Together we can work a little bit and then a little bit we'll join together to be a bigger force. Well, thank you so much, Chang for your time. I normally end all of my interviews with these questions. So the first one is, do you feel that you have found your why? Well, people sometimes ask me, so why I am here or why you become blind? I don't ask this question, but why I'm here. Sometimes I share with people that I'm a Christian and I believe that I have in some way a manifestation of the many possibilities we want human beings to experience. And I feel every life is meaningful and mine is as well. Do you feel that you have found your purpose in life? Uh, yes, my purpose is to try out different things, explore possibilities, spread a positive message to people that things can improve. A lot of people ask me why you are so successful. Can you share? I, I don't think I'm very successful in some sense. I feel failure can also be a success. It's a good experience to learn. So I remember there was this young student who once asked me, because the talk was meeting success, meaning meeting a successful person, so meeting me. So the student asked a question, very good, and I bring it up here to mm. share. She asked, why do we need to be successful? So I said, yes, this is a very good question. Because the kind of success we tell our younger generation is to study well, to be first in class, go into the best university to study in LSE, whatever. I said, you define your own success. And nobody can impose a success criteria on you if you don't want to take it. So to me, that's the meaning of life. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Well, I hope people remember me as a testimony of possibilities and they would do better than me. <laughs> and then I hope we have our message about inclusion, diversity, equality, justice, our belief in the universal values, and our commitment to living a sustainable world. These things can be followed through, and each generation will have a new generation of advocates. So they would bring a better society. And you said earlier that you don't think you're successful, but what do you think are the most important qualities a successful person, quote unquote, should have? Believe in what you have done, 
I have done what I can. I have changed a little bit. I fail in some other more traditional sense, like earning your wealth and so on and so forth. But you succeed in being satisfied with what you have caught, and don't worry about what you haven't. And where can people go to connect with you and find out more about what you're doing? I have a Facebook, but in Chinese mostly. I don't often put out English material because I address mostly Hong Kong friends. But you can get it translated, and if you put out English posts, I will respond. I have a LinkedIn account which I write mostly in English because it happens that I have connected to more English friends in the work world. I am happy to be connected and to collaborate on all the things I'm doing or on things that I may do in future. And that was the end of episode twenty-five. For the show notes and links to everything we just talked about, head over to sodismywhite.com/forward/slash/twenty-five, and don't forget to sign up for the weekly steamy newsletter, where I highlight upcoming guests as well as other inspirational and interesting people, initiatives. And articles happening around the world. As for next Sunday, we will be meeting a startup founder who has built a video-based app that allows everyone to record one second of every day as a form of a private diary entry. His app was featured on TED in John Favreau's movie Chef, and received the most backing on Kickstarter with over eleven thousand supporters. And that's just the start. To get the alert for the upcoming episode. Make sure you hit subscribe. See you then.